Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. When the invasion started, I thought, ah, this is going to give Scott Morrison a huge leg up. Khaki elections uh, tend to work quite well for incumbents. And the assertive adversarial language that the Prime Minister is using and his Defence Minister are using are, I suspect, going to resonate well with the electorate. Uh, and I think they are potentially going to be dangerous for our international relations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Australian Politics. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host, and uh, with me this week is the wonderful John Blacksland, who is Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at the ANU. Uh, John's at home in Canberra. Hi, John. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for the warm welcome. It's all good. And with me in the pod cave here in the Parliament House studio is the lovely Daniel Hurst, who is, of course, Guardian Australia's foreign and defence correspondent. And I reckon regular listeners will probably be on to the topic we're going to discuss this weekend, which of course is the conflict in Europe and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, John, with all complicated stories, I reckon it's always best to start at the beginning. So what are the origins of this conflict that we've seen play out horrifyingly over the last sort of week or so? So let's go back a few hundred years and think about why Ukraine has millions of Hungarians, uh, why it has a mixture of Russian Orthodox, Russian-speaking Ukrainian citizens, and why it has others who are more aligned with the with the Roman Catholic Church, despite generations of purported atheism under communism, uh, this still resonates as a big issue. And of course, the linguistic residue of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, and let alone of the Polish Empire of hundreds of years ago, which uh, the residue of which is littered across much of Western Ukraine. But at least for, you know, history that most of us can kind of get our heads around going back to the start of the Russian Revolution um, and the establishment of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, Ukraine featured in that space as one of the socialist republics uh, and did so for a long time with Crimea, despite it being a critical piece of real estate for Russia, uh, having been assigned to Ukraine as what was perceived back in the good old days of the Cold War as an inseparable part of the Soviet Union, which was all about Russia. 
and the others were really peripheral add-ons to the great Moscovite empire, writ large, if you like, in which Russian was the lingua franca, if I can use a Latin term. In 1991, of course, we saw that the Soviet Union literally dissolved. The Commonwealth of Independent States that emerged from it was not nearly as tightly bound as the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The USSR, and there's no going back to the USSR, despite what the Beatles might have said. <laughs> what happened was the, in the days of uh, Boris Yeltsin, there was a, a sense, and even uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, a sense that Ukraine could be let go uh, and it would remain uh, a friendly nation along its border, you know, as a, a bit like the relationship between Australia and New Zealand or Canada and the United States, where essentially you're still speaking the same language, you've still got broadly the same outlook on the world, and you're, you're broadly speaking partners in industry, in economics and in security. Um, along the way, uh, you know, the unipolar moment then emerged. The United States came out uh, pretty much unchallenged. Um, history was supposed to have ended, according to Francis Fukuyama, mm -hmm. <laughs> and disarm, and really a few problems emerged, you know, a few peacekeeping challenges, uh, a little bit of a problem down in the Balkans with the unravelling there, and slowly you got Russia getting a sense that the West wasn't really committed to being a security partner with Russia. For a while there, uh, there's a sense that NATO expands and there's a there's an appetite for many, a Warsaw Pact dissolves, a Warsaw Pact being signed in Warsaw uh, of the the former uh, Soviet-occupied satellite countries that they took off Germany at the end of the Second World War formed the Warsaw Pact uh, roughly about the same time as NATO is forming, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, in part a response to that kind of the sense that uh, both sides feared that the other was going to actually f trigger a nuclear war first. Uh, we saw that uh, with the, the the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 and the exercise Able Archer in 1983, a NATO exercise designed to test the ability of NATO to respond to a Soviet nuclear attack, but which was read by the East Germans and Soviets as the precursor operation to a launch of a nuclear attack. Thankfully, and there was that show Deutschland 83 shows, a great show on the SBS, on how, <laughs> thankfully, an East German spy was able to get the message across, no, it's not. It's, it is just an exercise. They're not actually going to fire a nuke at you. Yeah. Of course, there was a group think going on there in, in, in the East that, that this the, the, the dastardly West was going to do this. Um, and that sense of the dastardliness of the West and of NATO, kind of, uh, it lapsed for a little while in Russian thinking, but for 45 plus years, 45, 47 years, depending on how you count it, countries of Eastern Europe, the former Warsaw Pact, had really kind of only grudgingly been part of the Soviet empire. And as soon as they had an opportunity to join the NATO club, they ran across the border into the arms of NATO. And this, of course, has galling to the Russians. The former great mighty Soviet empire was being whittled away. And to a large extent, this is America's doing, but it's not just America's doing. These are countries that democratically elected government who are just pleading to join NATO because they are seeing still on uh, on their border, uh, a Russia that through the 90s is a kleptocrat 
autocratic oligarchic, it's pretty, you know, lawless, uh, becomes more constrained under Vladimir Putin, but becomes pretty darn authoritarian. And so we see the attack, you know, the way the Russians respond to Chechnya in the mid-1990s. And you look at the city of Grozny and you think, man, the Russians, they know how to destroy a city. You know, urban military operations in the urban terrain, we talk about it in very nice, cute, you know, uh, antiseptic terms. The Russians just, woof you know, destroy the city, a la Berlin 1945. They've got the art down pat, you know. Um, So this sends chilling, uh, you know, shivers down the spines of the Eastern Europeans who aren't yet part of NATO. So the NATO expansion keeps going. So the question is chicken or egg, you know, is it it American hubris? Uh, Yes, partly. Is it Eastern European fear of an authoritarian Russia? Yes, partly. Um, And is it deep-set Russian paranoia? Yes, partly. The combination leaves you with the slowly expanding uh, uh, NATO, which includes Poland, includes the Czech Republic and Slovakia, formerly Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and, of course, the Baltic states, the Latvian, Lithuanians and Estonians. I'm being a bit flippant here, but who would have thought seriously that the Baltic states would be part of NATO? When you think about it now, when you look back now, you think, really, how defensible are those little states on the edge of Russia, right up sandwiched, you know, right near St. Petersburg, states that are actually partly populated by Russians, ones that are deeply connected on many levels to Russia, but which the ethnic Latvians, Ukrainians and Estonians viscerally resent, you know, Mm. from the dark days of the Soviet era. So, Come along, and then the offer is made uh, to Georgia and Ukraine to maybe join. And of course, these countries are particularly in the eastern, uh, the western ends, less Russian, more European in their language, their culture, their religion. Uh, they love the idea, the idea of being part of NATO and not beholden to the whims of a of a increasingly ruthless and authoritarian president in in Moscow, is a pretty attractive proposition. Now throw in the mix a little bit of racism, a little bit of fascism, and a little bit of xenophobia, and you have an awful brew. Uh, the prospect of a situation where the holding hands of NATO around the Kumbaya campfire is butting up against real politic and the barrel of the gun, uh, where the Russians under Vladimir Putin are more nervous, more humiliated. Thucydides, the great ancient Greek historian writing about the Peloponnesian War, talked about fear, honour and interests. And all three of them overlap beautifully in Ukraine for Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that was floated out there that, you know, Ukraine, well, why shouldn't it be part of a NATO? Uh, of course, if, if Ukraine's going to be part of NATO, but Russia isn't, this sends a deep worrying signal to Russia. Um, so it might, it does raise some questions here about how do we let ourselves get to this position without thinking through how the Russians would view it? What could possibly go wrong? We're living it, yeah. And, I mean, that's fascinating, really, that look back of, you know, it's sort of like a slow-moving car crash, isn't it, really? Train wreck, we're staring at it. We're just watching it slow motion, yeah. Yeah. So let's whip through some obvious things now that are sort of on everybody's radar as a consequence of events over the last week or so. Why don't we start with, because obviously the West's initial response to the invasion of Ukraine has been sanctions. Will that work? And 
also, obviously, sanctions, if effective, will impose a great deal of privation and suffering on the Russian people. So what are the consequences of that flowing back through the Russian system? So there's two questions, really, John. Will they work? And what's the impact in Russia? So in the literature on sanctions, there is a deep-held scepticism as to their efficacy. There is a broadly understood view, and my colleagues uh, here at uh, the ANU have written on this. Brendan Taylor has written on it. His PhD was on it. Sanctions rarely work. You require a level of coordination and resolve that few sanctions are able to foster and then maintain. Now, this may prove that wrong. I'm not holding my breath. I, uh, a few days ago, was advocating for what was then being considered the tailored application of Magnitsky Act type principles against key players. I was really a bit worried about going there with SWIFT, the International Transactional Coding Arrangements. Uh, my concern is that uh, we may be biting off more than we can chew, the ramifications of which we have not fully thought through. Russia still is, while it is, you know, an economy that's almost the size, somewhere between Australia and Canada in size, uh, it actually controls for the Europeans uh, some key resources, particularly oil and gas, that are not nice-to-haves, they're must-haves in the absence of which they face bordering on cataclysm. Um, and so the talk of ratcheting up to absolute sanctions is easy to say from Washington or perhaps London, where they've still got North Sea gas. If you are sitting in Berlin or uh, elsewhere in uh, cold but uh, gas-dependent Europe, where that gas comes uh, from Russia, mostly through Ukraine still at the moment, but uh, essentially from Russian oil fields, oil and gas fields, this is a price that you have not fully thought through about how you're going to pay. That is really worrying. So it's very interesting to see the new Chancellor of Germany who took over from Angela Merkel, who initially appeared to be really prepared to follow Angela's angle, if I can play that pun, on uh, maintaining a relationship with Russia that was about engaging Russia with a view to pacifying Russia, uh, with a view to, you know, fostering a mutually dependent economic relationship through the oil and gas pipeline deal. He has, Olaf Scholz has stood up in the last couple of days, and if he follows through on it, what he says marks a significant inflection point. A, a turnaround that will potentially see Germany play a leading role in Europe, the likes of which we have not seen for the better part of a century. No, exactly. I, you've anticipated uh, I, I wanted to take us there because there's, there's some interesting realignments and relationships that are sort of in evidence as a consequence of these events. There's the German relationship that you that you highlighted or, or the German posture, which is really deeply interesting. Also, there's the relationship between Putin and Xi Jinping in our own region. So that sort of axis between China and Russia. So what do you make of that, John? So Mearsheimer in the tragedy of great power uh, conflict, I think that's how he called the book, talked about the balance of powers on the Eurasian landmass 
Uh, and recently he has revisited this in a couple of articles in uh, the US Journal of Foreign Affairs. And he's been lambasting the Biden administration for misreading Russia and castigating the United States and administrations ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall for the failure of imagination to re-envisage the relationship with Russia uh, in more positive terms. And by allowing the encroachment onto the former Soviet empire come at, in a zero-sum sense, in a zero-sum game at the expense of Russia, and that generating enormous pushback. But when you think about Mishima's broad concept of the balance of great powers, you know, it was an esoteric concept that reflected the kind of ivory tower debates of which I love to participate in, but which are slightly detached from the real world. This discussion now is bringing it really down to the pavement. The rubber is well and truly hitting the road because all of a sudden, as we think about the great power dynamics in East Asia and the worries about the, what might be happening around Taiwan, Russia features more prominently than ever. And the question then is, and this is what Mearsheimer argues, is that why have we not spent the last two decades weaning Russia off China? Uh, and in, in an inverse uh, relationship to what Nixon and Kissinger did in 1971, visiting uh, Beijing to woo Mao Zedong away from the, uh, the communist embrace with the Soviet Union, it had fallen away by the, for a decade by then anyway, to be fair, but to make an, a, an arrangement with China, um, which, you know, as we know, happened. Gough Whitlam had gone uh, only days before um to uh, just a little aside here, Catherine, it's very interesting for domestic politics for Australia. We think about this. Gough went to Beijing, Peking as we called it then, only days before Henry Kissinger went. Uh, he came back and Billy McMahon, then that a long-standing Prime Minister of Australia who won so many elections. Oh, hang on a minute. No, he didn't. Billy McMahon, who lampooned Gough for daring to, you know, being a traitor, for going to see the Chinese communists in Peking, as he called it, only days later having egg firmly planted on his face mm. when the news breaks that uh, Richard Nixon's doing a deal with Mao as well. So I, I say that as because this is this is the great power dynamics that have not been played, that we haven't seen a flipping of the great power dynamics like this since 1971. Quite an extraordinary event, quite an extraordinary event. So the Olaf Scholz dynamic in Germany and the, the what seems to be a... Uh, uh, a, a crystallising of resolve in the NATO space to to not bicker anymore, not kind of shy away from actually the real politic that has been brewing for, you know, the last few years, the storm clouds that should have been patently clear in 2014 when the little green men started taking non-Donbass and shooting down Malaysian airliners over Ukraine. Mm. should have been crystallising their thinking. Well, it was still, no, let's just keep the blinkers on. Let's pretend that's not happening and, and keep on offering expansion of, of NATO, even though, and this is the other irony here, Catherine, really interesting, NATO is a shadow of its former self, you know. The NATO of today, I saw a graph and I can't remember the, quite the numbers, but it showed the NATO battalions and tank battalions of 1989 compared to 
2020 or something like that. It's just a shadow of its former self. So this idea that Putin's been spouting about, you know, NATO being a threat, it's like, give me a freaking break. NATO is nothing. NATO can barely protect itself, defend itself, let alone coordinate its actions. Now, the same can't be said to be fair for the United States, but the United States has no appetite for this. They're trying to pivot to Asia for crying out loud. John, can I cut in while we're on the pivot to Asia? Um, what do you make of China's positioning on this? Um, obviously, China's abstained twice um, when it comes to UN Security Council resolution and the General Assembly, but didn't vote in Russia's favour either. There was a bit of language at the beginning about this is not the situation we'd like to see, but not using the word invasion. They've continued to trade with Russia, of course, and just at the start of the Winter Olympics, Putin and Xi sort of announced a partnership where that nothing was off limits. But it seems in the last few days, China's also been emphasising a message of wanting to play some sort of peacemaker role. It's not clear exactly what that is yet and, you know, whether their actions will match that. But what do you make of China's positioning on all this? It's a great question because, you know, you look at the UN General Assembly resolution uh, and the UN Security Council. China's got a veto right on the UN Security Council. They abstain. And here we are with the UN General Assembly. I'm just looking at the chart here. I'm looking down the list at China and it abstains again. Mm. 141 deploring Russia, five against, 35 abstained, including China. And China's keeping a salubrious company with Iran, Iraq and uh, you know, such Lao People's Democratic Republic, Kyrgyzstan, Nicaragua. But, you know, yes, understandably, you know, they've done a deal with uh, Putin. We know that from the, the negotiations that we understand took place around the, the uh, Winter Olympics. Uh, my sense is, and of course this is all opaque and it's a, a bit of educated guesswork as to exactly what's going on, but my sense is that uh Xi would, must be very uncomfortable about how this is unfolding in in Ukraine at the moment uh, because um, one, one assumes, one gets the impression that Putin must have convinced him that this would be a pretty easy rollover uh, and that all it needed to do is what, do what he did in the first couple of days and that's kind of hit a few military targets, uh, send a message of resolve and have Zelensky do what... Uh, his Afghan counterpart did back in August last year and take the first flight out of out of Dodge uh, on his way to a, a sinecure somewhere, perhaps in the Middle East, in Dubai, or, you know, somewhere where he could stash a lot of money and live a nice lifestyle, come and hang the consequences. And Zelensky didn't do it. What the hell? What's going on? And he's, you know, being the thespian and to quote, you know, play on Shakespeare, all the world's a stage. He knows this well. He's playing it like a fiddle. Zelensky is masterfully rallying, rallying Ukrainian resolve against Russia and Russia's, you know, authoritarian militarist streak in a way that I think is rattling in, in, the, in the halls in Beijing as well. Um, this has got enormous implications. The resolve that the Germans are showing, the strength of unitary thinking in Western halls of power must be worrying to Beijing, to President Xi, because this was not the plan. And what this means for what President Xi wants to do in East Asia, they will be scratching their heads because, of course, we know that for one thing, 
the view that uh, Vladimir Putin aired on the point of invasion, where he basically denied uh, Ukrainian statehood. It's like, holy dooly. Um, do you realise the implications of that, Vladimir? And G must be completely aware of the ramifications. What does this say about Tibet? Mm. Yeah, and Taiwan, obviously, yes. Let alone the South China Sea, you know. Um, might is right. Is that the only way we're doing things now? Uh, because if that's the case, if we're not, if we're not even going to keep a fig leaf of ad- adherence to international protocols, uh, UN resolutions and uh, international norms about the way statecraft, international statecraft operates, that it has the way it has for the last 80 years or so since 1945. If we're not going to even pretend to do that anymore, because I mean this is what the Americans did in, in in Iraq in 2003, they maintain the fig leaf of the UN Security Council resolutions from the first Gulf War, which hadn't been rescinded, right? And that technically, you know, from a legalese point of view, appears to have given the Americans enough of a colour to proceed and hang the consequences, even though they wanted a new resolution back in March 2003, they didn't get it, but they had enough of a legal cover to proceed regardless. Russia's not even trying that. They're not even trying that this time. I was going to ask, since you've raised intelligence and we know all the sort of issues with Iraq and the, how the intelligence was used, in the last few months we saw US and the UK really release, or when I say release, disclose what their intelligence was telling them about Russia and Putin planning potentially to invade. I was wondering if you had any view on what the US goal was in terms of putting that information out in public over the last few months and whether that whether that had any impact at all, uh, because there seemed to be a different interpretation from the Germans and the French about the reality of whether he actually would proceed. Yes, no, exactly. Um, See, the problem is that the WMD fiasco of 2003 so gravely damaged the credibility of the US intelligence system that they, uh, 19 years later, have yet to fully recover. Right. No one really believes the Americans when they start spouting things about, you know, intelligence revelations because of WMD. Now, to be fair, let's not forget France and Russia also thought there was WMD in Iraq in 2003. The great irony is, you know, this the classic mistake of intelligence analysts, which I teach in my honeypots and overcoats class, which is you don't mirror image. Don't think your target thinks the way you do. They've got different cultural geostrategic dispositions that make them think about the world in a completely different way to you and I. Their world is not your world. It's not our world. It's very different. And what we fail to do with Saddam Hussein is to remember that he'd fought a 10-year war against Iran and it was touch and go as to who would win. Now, he came out on top, but only briefly, and in that context was a deep-set paranoia about daring to reveal that WMD didn't exist, that they were a straw man. And, of course, what we failed to do is realise that. So when he was, you know, huffing and puffing and pretending, you know, and refusing to confirm or deny, uh, we were thinking, it's proof. You see, he's still hiding them. He's still hiding them somewhere. Got them there. we just got to find them not realising that he was playing us. He was playing us to to keep Iran at bay, not realising that his gravest threat was, in fact, not Iran, it was the United States of America. But putting putting aside that, you know, uh, historical case, what, what was the aim of, of the US putting that information out? So the credibility is still shot 
okay, from WMD. But what we're seeing is because of of Vladimir Putin's, you know, this is a KGB man of old, right, who loves his Muskidovka and his Desinformatia. He loves it. Like, he just completely floats his boat, uh, playing games, tricking people, playing games with people's heads. The little green men was what it was back in 2014, the denial that the MH17 was shot down by a Russian book, uh, that it was, uh, you know, it was handled by people. And, uh, you know, we didn't know. It had nothing to do with us. You know, someone else's problem. BS. But very effective BS, you know, um, and he uh, master of obfuscation, smoke throwing, uh, and deflection. Um, and so what we see is, in fact, uh, and it, to my mind, it's only crystallised in the last few days. I was sceptical as well, I must admit, uh, in the lead-up to the invasion. I thought, okay, the Americans are playing a bit of a game here, but what I realise now is that what they were doing is they were trying to uncover his Maskirovka. They were trying to play up, because we see, in as we look at, as we try and look back at what happened in the first couple of days of the operation, it appears Putin was trying to make it easy to quickly topple Zelensky, set up a new government, which is why it was light footprint in the first couple of days, topple Zelensky, make it look like this is a domestic tussle for politics and power. It's not really about the Russians. It's a domestic Ukrainian issue. And what emerges is a Russian puppet, right? Um and the revelations in those last few days are all about exposing the Russian uh, tactics, about exposing their attempt to try and make the game sound like this is all very legitimate and nothing to worry about. Please move along, folks. You know, uh, there's there's really it's just all just internal domestic uh, Ukrainian issue, and the Russians are interested and concerned. Observers happen to be you know mustering 190,000 troops on the border. Minor technicality. <laughs> Turn up with a couple of tanks. But you mean, John, that the US. Was- was sort of what trying to flush that out. That's exactly fl- yeah, right, Catherine. Right. That's what they were doing. We just wouldn't believe them because of our. We, we've got a seared conscience, seared sense of experience of American untrustworthiness when it comes to major international revelations with purported intelligence, mm-hmm. and you know. Um, uh, that the, the 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 shameful moment of of Colin Powell at the UN putting up the pictures and photos of the the trucks the WMD trucks that were just half baked concoctions with with uh, you know very low grade human intelligence reports that were clearly uh, spurious uh, where a guy was being paid to lie effectively uh, and then given far too much credence. Uh, We all fell for it, you know, as I say, even the French and the Russians fell for this. Um, And, of course, it was Colin Powell, so, of course, a trustworthy guy. He he wouldn't lie, would he? Yes. Sadly, uh, we're pushing right up against time here. I think Daniel had a specific question that he wanted to put to you about... Uh, about um, about the equipment we're sending. So this yes. this week, I mean, obviously sanctions was last week in terms of Australia rolling out the sanctions. Obviously, we're not a big player when it comes to sanctions. We're just a supporting player in the sense. Um, but this week there was an announcement that there'd be seventy million dollars worth of um, lethal military equipment supplied. Um, there was a globe master that left Australia yesterday with some supplies. We don't know exactly what was on it, um, but it's heading towards Europe. Do you have any insight into how difficult logistically it will be to get this equipment in there? Obviously, we're using our NATO partners. We're not flying in directly. But what sort of practical difference, if any, would the Australian suppliers make and how would it actually get in? So... I'm not a, I'm not privy to the details of what's being supplied. 
Um, but we do know that uh, a lot of other countries, NATO countries, are supplying uh, arms and ammunition and uh, other logistics support, um, and that it is bolstering the resolve and morale of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian forces to resist and to put up a darn good fight and make it very, very difficult for Vladimir Putin to get what he wants, which is a clean sweep, a quick turnover and the establishment of a puppet regime in Ukraine and the establishment of an enclave in Donbass and in Crimea with a land bridge that is essentially going to crimp Ukraine, uh, make it a smaller, less Russian state, but beholden to Russia uh, with the part of the country more integrated into Russia. The problem here is that we, we're butting up against uh, a man who is uh, not mad, but dangerous and, uh, you know, depends on how you view f philosophically these issues, but bordering borderline downright evil. Um, in terms of what he's prepared to do, the pain he's prepared to inflict. He, I think, is quite serious about uh, toying with nuclear escalation and uh, a no-fly zone would be across that threshold, in my view. Short of that, though, the indirect supply of uh, munitions, logistics support uh, and so on is probably not going to cross that threshold and it is going to certainly warm the cockles of the hearts of the politicians in countries like Australia and Canada uh, and across Europe and, and, and the United States, noting in countries like Canada, Australia to a certain extent too, but Canada way more so, huge migrant Ukrainian community who are completely roused, aroused by this experience and completely, you know, pressing the Canadians to double down on supporting the Ukrainian Zelensky government. There's a similar dynamic here. And of course, there, this is playing into not my field of expertise, but domestic politics. There's enormous domestic political dimension to this, uh, which, you know, my sense is that when the invasion started, I thought, ah, this is going to give Scott Morrison a huge leg up. Khaki elections uh, tend to work quite well for incumbents. And the assertive adversarial language that the Prime Minister is using and his Defence Minister are using are, I suspect, going to resonate well with the electorate. Uh, and I think they are potentially going to be dangerous for our international relations. What do you, you, you mentioned there just, um, you, you thought that at first, has your view changed, John, over the last week? Or do you still think it's a plus for the Morrison government domestically? Uh, I think it's too early to say, Catherine. I think he's banking on it being a plus. Whether or not in the long run it will be depends on exactly how ugly it gets in Ukraine mm. and whether it spreads. And mm. it's not beyond conceivable that it could spread. Uh, my concern is actually more local, in, in regionally, I mean, um, and the great discomfort of our Indonesian neighbours uh, let alone uh, other countries beyond Thailand, I know well, and I'm m mindful that they vote. They voted uh, for the resolution, uh, the UN General Assembly resolution, but probably reluctantly, probably under some pressure from the United States and others in ASEAN, maybe Singapore and perhaps Australia as well, because um, they like Russia. Indonesia really likes Russia. Indonesia buys Russian kit uh, quite often. 
uh, and uh, they have, uh, you know, a love, bit of a, uh, it's ebbed and flowed the relationship with Russia, obviously, but uh, the Russians have been assiduously working the room in 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 Jakarta to uh, improve their relations. But for us, when we think about Australia's posture in the neighbourhood, actually our relationship with these countries are the most important. They're the most difficult, but most important, and we need to be not looking to send a megaphone message to Ukraine over the tops of our cringing Indonesian neighbours. We Mm. need to be thinking astutely about the ramifications. And I don't say I've got the answer here. I'm just saying we need to be mindful day to day of how our neighbours are responding and being attuned to their sensibilities and looking to collaborate as effectively as possible with them because our future, our security our prosperity is inextricably linked with their destiny. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that I have not thought enough about in terms of the regional sensibilities. Look, I could go on for an hour and I would really enjoy it, but sadly we can't. So I just want to end on this question, John. It's a quote that was in a piece that I read in The New Yorker at some time over the last 48 hours where a Russian democracy activist was quoted posing the sort of, you know, $64 million question, really, If you had to make a prediction about this conflagration, do you think it will result in the end of Putin's reign or the end of the world? I mean, obviously the latter point is a bit overstated, but you know what I mean. Is it most likely on the balance of of history and current observation to rebound on Putin or are we escalating towards conditions in Europe that we've not seen since the Second World War? So barring a barrier moment... Barrier being the guy shot in the barn, uh, extrajudicially just taken out and removed uh, by his colleagues who saw him as being too dangerous for the nation's good, um, despite being, you know, uh, part of the communist system. Despite that kind of intervention by one of the inner circle of the oligarchy uh, or him falling ill uh, and in, incapacitated. I don't see him losing office. I see him having sufficient grip on power to ride the dragon through the storm. And that is, you know, sadly my view. I, I don't, I find the character quite odious, um, but I'm trying to be realistic about the prospects. At the same time, I also am mindful that there are cool and clever heads in many of the capitals that are engaged on these issues. So I also don't think that we are at a Stanley Kubrick moment, if you like, where um, you know a cowboy is riding uh, the bomb down from the B-52. Um, if I can use a, that uh, image, it's one of my favourite movies, by the way. Yes, please use the image. That's fine. I think we have in people like Emmanuel Macron uh, and uh, Olaf Scholz some very realistic power players in Europe who understand the risks and dangers of escalation over that threshold and the need to operate short of the threshold that would trigger that kind of escalation. Look, even Boris Johnson in his visit to the Baltics in the last couple of days has been saying, you know, no fly zones, not we're not going there. Uh, there's been some relatively, you know, hawkish generals even in Canada that I've been listening and monitoring, that have been listening to and monitoring, saying, oh, we should 
set up an no-fly zone, you know, let's do it, you know, push back on the Ruskies, uh, you know, that is, that's just inviting disaster. We have to be realistic about what the options are for Ukraine. The best I think we can do is help them indirectly uh, and hope and work assiduously behind the scenes in collaboration with people like the Germans and the French and the Brits in Europe and the Americans and others, including if we can with China, to find an accommodation. Russia, to be fair, even though Putin is odious, has a place in the pantheon, if you like, the power in the Eurasian landmass. It has to be accommodated. And Vladimir Putin's made this very, very clear. If you do not accommodate me, I will lash out. And he has lashed out out of a sense of uh, his honour being trampled on, his fear of further encroachment and his perception of what is in Russia's interests. So it gets back to my Thucydidean tr- uh, trinity, if you like, of fear, honour and interests. Mm. And I think that still resonates very, very compellingly to this day. Yeah, okay. Well, I hate to say fatuously, we'll all find out, uh, but we certainly will all find out as events continue to play out. John, thank you so much for your time. It is always so delightful to have a conversation with you and sort of look at the currents through history that bring us to these points in time. So I'm very grateful you made the time. Thank you to Daniel, who's been my sidekick here uh, today. Very much appreciate that. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the executive producer of this show. Thank you to Karishma Luthria, who is cutting the show this week. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, John. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 